Hey, Jay here. So I recorded this about a month ago, and I'm really grateful that uh, this friend of mine took the time. He, he works in law enforcement and took the time to talk to me about uh, his job and a lot of the recent controversies that have been going on in the news cycles. Um, this is a terrible interview on my part. I did a really bad job preparing for it, and then I was exhausted. So you're, <laughs> you're hearing the worst interview I've ever done by far, I'm sure. Uh, and this, that's even after I cut out all of my crazy two-minute lapses of saying absolutely nothing. It's still pretty bad. And I, I just really appreciate the fact that he was willing to uh, put up with me. And so much of his information and perspective is so valuable that I, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks. Hey, thanks so much for uh, answering my <laughs> highly ignorant, stupid questions about uh, law enforcement and, and how these things work. Um, there's been so much news lately over the last six months or so, and I think a lot of people don't understand a lot of the internal workings of uh, how uh, how the system works in terms of uh, the the way that I've tried to focus my thoughts is around uh, prosecutor impartiality. And uh, I guess what I don't understand out of a total ignorant, like the only thing I know about law enforcement comes from TV and movies and whatever. And uh, what I think I know about law enforcement is that the, the prosecutors uh, have to uh, work with the police every day to um, bring uh, criminals to justice. And then it's, it, what I don't understand is when the defendant is a police officer, is a is a law enforcement officer. How is it that the system can possibly work? Like if I'm if I'm a prosecuting attorney, right, and all day every day, my whole job is to work with um, with police officers to put the guilty people in jail, which everyone in society agrees is a good thing and you know an amazing uh, job that that you're willing to do, how is it then that they, that those same people can be impartial if the, there's a, uh, there, there's a problem, uh, incident with, with a, a law enforcement person, if that makes any sense at all. I'm probably phrasing this question really badly. It, do, it does make <laughs> sense. There's, there's two things to think about. One is there's the grand jury process and then there's the actual criminal trial process. So if the grand jury comes back with an indictment of yes and to proceed with charges, then the, the prosecutor has to, now how do I proceed as if this person's a criminal? Because in the grand jury side of it, they're simply looking at, is there enough evidence that these people on the grand jury believe warrant going to trial? And so there's two different levels of um, reasonable doubt, suspicion that have to be achieved for each one. Um, for the prosecutor, each one of them are just factually based. They're not ever injecting opinions. These are the facts, and I will present the facts to you is basically the presentation on both. For a grand jury, it is simply does it meet the criteria of um, a criminal offense being committed. And if they believe a criminal offense has been committed, then the grand jury will come back and say yes, based on the facts, 
a crime has been committed and it needs to go to a jury trial or a bench trial. So the judge then would be the jury. And then the prosecutor then switches from, I'm just trying to make sure they understand that there's been a crime committed to now I have to prove this person committed the crime. Michael Brown, Gardner, those are the cases that, that are currently on everybody's mind. But the idea of police overstepping their bounds and committing, quote, crimes against a citizen go back you know, hundreds of years. It's just more of the, in today's society, what are we looking at? And there, there's two things to look at. One is um, department policy. All if, if you, as an officer, follow your department's policies, then you will be within your legal guide, legal grounds to, to do whatever it is you've done. And, and the other is um, beyond your department and your department's policies, there's the legal, what do I, what can I legally do? And oftentimes department policies are more narrow than what the federal government says is the range of scope of what an officer can do. And so an example of that would be um, on my department, if a felon is fleeing, I cannot shoot them just by the fact that they're a felon and they're fleeing. The federal government Supreme Court has ruled that law enforcement can shoot a person who's fleeing a scene of a crime just for being a felon. The crime is a felon, I can shoot them to stop them from fleeing. My department's policy is it has to be a, a violent felony offense. That they have so, just committed or anywhere in their Well, fe- federal government says anywhere. Mm-hmm. If you have previously committed a felon, I'm trying to apprehend you, and I'm trying to take you into custody, and you flee, federal government says I can shoot you. My department policy says you have to have just committed one, and it has to have been a violent felony. So a, a rape, a robbery, a aggravated assault, homicide, something along those lines would be considered a violent felon that has just occurred. Mm. So, so in the, the Michael Brown case, right, if it had not been a police officer involved and Michael Brown was dead and, um, there had been obviously some kind of altercation and that went to a grand jury, the grand jury would definitely decide that a crime had been committed, right? If it was not a police officer involvement because, because Michael Brown is, is deceased and there's signs of there's spent shell casings. There's all these things. Is, is that and that would then go to? Am I understanding that process at all? <laughs> well, that's not necessarily correct. And the reason I'm saying that is, if put yourself in the officer's position, if somebody reaches into your vehicle and you have a gun in your vehicle, and now there's a struggle over that gun in your car and the gun goes off, then the person runs away and then turns around and comes back at you, which is what's factually been presented in that case, do you have the ability to defend yourself or, or do you have the ability to have the person who's bigger than you beat you? Which is your, okay, you should have the ability to defend yourself since there's already been a fight over the gun. And so whether you're a citizen or whether you're a police officer, you have the ability to defend yourself. And if you can articulate I am doing this due to the fear for my life that this person has already created and they've turned around and are coming back at me, then you would be justified in doing what you're doing, whether you're a police officer or a citizen. Wouldn't that typically be a normal criminal trial, though? Not, no, that would, that would still would be go a to grand the grand jury. jury. Every, 
everything goes to a grand jury before it would go to a criminal trial. Everything so, does? Everything does. Oh, I thought, I thought Grant, so I get so much information from just mainstream media and they say things like, oh, the, the grand jury is kind of this political defensive mechanism that is only happening in these special cases where the public is in an outcry about the situation that doesn't look fair or it looks racially motivated or it looks, you know. When, when a prosecutor gets a case, whether it's involving a police officer or not involving a police officer, the prosecutor then, they, quote, present the case. Well, that's their, somebody in their office then has to go before the grand jury. There's always a standing grand jury. There will be breaks. There will be a couple of weeks where they won't have one, but then there will be a group that's sequestered to be the grand jury for everything for a period of time. Oh. And so they will see everything from... Um, white collar crime to homicides come through as presented to grand jury. Is this something that should go to a trial? Hmm. So those are the people who determine if the prosecutor at this point has enough evidence to go forward to present the case to an actual jury. Hmm. So then in the, in the Eric Garner case, the, the, the grand jury decided that the, the officers involved and all of this was videotaped on body camera or right. a, a Citizen, bystander, I think yeah. video Cell phone. on their phone. Yeah. Um, they did the, the grand jury in that case decided that the, the officers involved, um, were in, engaged, uh, with Eric Garner in a way that was compliant with the policies of the New York city police department. Correct. And, they, uh, so do you have are there like rules of engagement, like in the military that the, if they do this, you're allowed to do this. Is that, is it called rules of engagement? A These lot are of department police departments policy? used to have a multi-tiered. So there's level one, then there's level two and there's level, and you finally get to level five and five is lethal force. Hmm. Almost all of them have thrown that out because then you're boxed into, well, now I'm at level two and I can only do level two stuff. And then you really have to quickly get to level five, which would be lethal force. So most of them have thrown that out and gone with the Supreme Court's ruling of um, reasonable and prudent. So whatever a reasonable person would think is prudent for that circumstance would be the amount of force you can use. So myself, I am 200 pounds and five foot ten, and if I'm trying to apprehend somebody who's six foot six and 300 pounds. The amount of force I would need to do that if they're struggling could be more than what I have to use to take somebody into custody who's uh, five foot five, 160 pounds. Mm -hmm. You have to use the amount of force required to get the desired effect, which is taking somebody into custody. In the specifically in the Eric Gardner case, they used, and it's often in media referred to as they strangled him. They choked him out. They used a lateral vascular neck restraint which is across the board, across the United States, a completely acceptable um, restraint position that is not a choke, is not suffocating the person, has nothing to do with airflow, has to do with blood flow. And the whole purpose of it is to, if the person is still refusing to comply, then it can cause the person to pass out if you continue to apply force needed to get to that and you're applying force based on their compliance. And so it's the um, lateral vascular neck restraint, which is what those officers used. They didn't choke him. They didn't suffocate him. 
I, a police officer or any police officer, can't ask you, do you have any pre-existing medical conditions before I take you into custody? Because you're probably not going to answer the question. If you're already refusing to cooperate, chances are you're not going to tell me you have heart arrhythmia or you have whatever condition you might have that then when I use the tools that are in my my uh, training to try to take you into custody, if there's an issue you have that by you choosing to resist get aggravated, that can't be put on the officer because you as an individual were making the choice to resist in the first place. Yeah. And, I, and I've heard uh, that policies have been adjusted in some areas where uh, people that have frequent run-ins with the police will, of course, say anything to get out of the arrest process. And one of the things was that they would say, oh, I'm having chest pains or something, and immediately... Yeah, we refer to that to, as jailitis. Yes. Jailitis, <laughs> yeah. And so I've heard that there's been some policy shift in some uh, districts or areas where if someone complains of chest pains, then you you call the rescue squad. We, we call an ambulance. If anybody complains of any injuries, you get them treated. If that means I'm waiting to go book somebody in for two hours at the hospital, then I'm waiting for two hours to go book them in. Um, generally speaking, when people realize we're going to sit there and wait until they're, they're treated, if they don't actually have an ailment, they'll miraculously get better and say, okay, let's go get this over with. Yeah. Because... Their time in jail doesn't decrease by the fact that we're at the hospital. And they've got a bill to pay now for Correct. the, yeah, because that's all on there. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've heard that's been a, in those situations. I can't remember what podcast I was listening to or something where they talked about this, but that's been a big drain on those, those resources, especially at first, while the people who, uh, have jailitis or, <laughs> are adjusting to this new policy and realizing that they're not going to get away with anything just because they're, you know, complaining about it. And I would too, of course, say anything not to get arrested, especially if I'm a frequent flyer in the, the County jail, whatever I can say that I know you have to do something about that, you know, I, right. I so, would try to say that. Some people you know, will think, okay, if I, if I say this, the officer will, will give up, just throw their hands up. And, and as soon as the officer leaves, because now I'm at the hospital under their care and supervision, I can just get up and, and leave. But when they realize that we are going to stay and, and make sure they go through the entire booking process, then they sometimes, if you, have a, if you have a true ailment, then there are times that we end up medically priority releasing people under their medical condition because their medical treatment was going to be more important than getting the booked in. So you can you know, make, make sure they understand that we, we will put a warrant out for you and we will pick you up later. But your medical treatment is important. Yeah. So trying to circle back to my my first stab at the, the prosecutor mm-hmm. uh, problem, when if you have a bad actor in, in law enforcement that has made a bad decision at some point resulting in the loss of life, um the 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 people who are involved in the prosecuting attorneys and, and the the grand juries aren't they the same folks that work with law enforcement all the time and is that don't wouldn't i have an incentive not to uh make 
the police union or whoever, uh, you know, upset with me that I've gone after one of their own? I mean, is that not a phenomenon that actually is? Is that not real? Is that not a thing? Generally, whoever presents the grand jury is different than. So for our department, the example is our domestic violence unit has a prosecutor assigned to it. Our homicide unit has a prosecutor assigned to it. Our property crimes unit has a prosecutor assigned to it. So they know exactly which prosecutor they can go to to try to expedite their processes. But when those prosecutors get something they need turned into a grand jury, they're giving it to somebody else. So somebody else is completely in charge of presenting that case Hmm. to the grand jury. So all they can present is the information that they've been given. So to say that whoever's presenting it has any... um, issues with the people they're working with, they're generally buffered by a le- another layer of, of uh, legalese in there. But that's for how our department works. Other departments, smaller departments, smaller jurisdictions. Um, the example is Ferguson is a small, small police department, and they're kind of at the mercy of whatever St. Louis County and whatever St. Louis County's process is. So larger police departments have a little more um, a little more of that relationship already built in. But in Ferguson's case, he was still determined not to be at fault, even though a small department has no pre-existing relationship with the prosecutor. Hmm. If, if we took, and hopefully this isn't happening in 2015, but if we took a very small town with uh, where the entire police force was was white in the in the the past and the um and the the citizenry is african american and say you have some runaway bad actors in that in that process i i would think that the the if the grand juries are representative of the community at large and they're uh, a, a racial representation of isn't the, the process or the the system is supposed to work in such a way that the grand jury is made up of the citizens of the community, right? It's supposed to be the and, correct ratio. And so, well, hopefully it's, uh, if they felt systematic, if, if a neighborhood, if a community felt systematically oppressed by a, a, a police force that they felt was overreaching and over, was, had complaints filed against it constantly, wouldn't the grand jury consisting of the people from that uh, community, isn't that a, a good system for making sure that that would self-correct? I mean, I, I, I don't understand. Right, but if, I understand what you're asking, but all they're presenting the grand jury are facts. And so whatever biases you have, whatever biases the people who come into the grand jury have, they're bringing those with them. So if they feel that police are corrupt, they're bringing that bias with them. If they feel, as a law-abiding citizen, the police are doing their job, they bring that bias with them. So every one of those people on the grand jury have their own set of biases they brought with them, as opposed to um, everybody across the board, okay, he's automatically guilty, because the whole point is, I'm going to present facts, and based on the facts given, these are the levels of um, offenses or charges that can can be filed. Do these facts meet that goal, that criteria. Mm. And if not, then you're going to be found uh, to have a, a no true bill and, and you're, you're, there's going to be no trial. So I think there's, there's 
two questions that to me are being asked a lot. One is, has the grand jury system failed because they're not indicting more people? And two, based on facts that are being presented, not the media, but the facts, are we just not hearing the correct facts? Because the media has a tendency to present what they want to the public versus the facts. And that's where us in law enforcement sometimes get irritated when you turn on the news or you turn on Fox, CNBC, MSNBC, whoever you want to listen to. They're not necessarily dealing with the facts, they're dealing with their opinions. And the problem with your opinions is they're not fact. And so if a grand jury is presented fact and not opinion, all they can judge by is the facts. Well, I think, yeah, I think the media is under constant pressure to sensationalize everything because that's what's news, what they, they, they call themselves news channels and what's newsworthy is the sensationalism of whatever is most sensational, right? And so I think that that is a constant in the 24-7 news cycle. Um, I'm, I'm trying to imagine, because I don't know, if, if, I don't know anything about Ferguson specifically. Um, well, I don't know enough to talk about it. But if that was a breakdown of the system, like if the system in Ferguson failed, I'm trying to imagine what would a better system be because on paper, at least, it sounds like we have a system that should self-correct if there was a, a problem which in system, Ferguson. But which system are you referring to? So, the police system or the grand jury legal system? So uh, imagine with me a, a different, a, an imaginary city, not Ferguson, Missouri, but some other city, where there was this, there was some sort of rampant racism going on against people that happened to have purple skin or whatever. I mean, it doesn't, it, if there was a, a, a police, a, a law enforcement uh, if law enforcement was systematically racist against any group, then given that the grand jury and given that juries themselves are both composed of the community in question, if they're representative of the community that's being served, then wouldn't that be flushed out. Like I'm trying to imagine if the system that we have currently is not a good system, what would a better system be? And it, it, it seems to me that the, the system should work on paper the way that I read. Uh, well, the, the, the problem is I think you're separating, you're, you're trying to bulk in a city level jurisdiction into the county it's in. So the grand jury and the jury of your peers are always going to be of the entire county. So everybody in the county gets your jur jury notice. So then you're either on a grand jury or regular jury, and so you show up. So it's not just the people of Ferguson or whatever imaginary city is on the jury. It's the entire county. So in St. Louis County, you have South County, North County, you have Ferguson. You have a very wide mix of people. But yes, the grand jury is designed to meet, make up the same basic makeup of, of the entire county of the entire county so it might it might be possible that things are going wrong against a specific racial minority and the grand jury system can't self-correct that because when you get the, a larger pool they're not seeing the, the the pattern there of is that possible it, it is possible but i i'm just going to push back a little bit on 
the concept of an entire police force being racist. And the only reason I'm going to push back on that is if you have a population... So within the city I work, there's some very predominantly um, Caucasian neighborhoods. There's some very predominantly Hispanic neighborhoods. There's some very predominantly black or African-American neighborhoods. So it depends on what neighborhood I'm assigned to patrol is going to go a long ways in who I can pull over. If I'm assigned to patrol a neighborhood that's predominantly Caucasian, how am I supposed to pull over a racially diverse group of people? And so then would I be racist because I'm only pulling over white people? I, I'm choosing not to pull over the black people, of course, because that's uh, he's, a, he's a only pulling over the white people. Look at his statistics. However, if I'm the officer, white, black, Hispanic, who happens to be in the, in the African-American neighborhood, and my job is to enforce crime, and so I'm looking for people who are rolling through stop signs or speeding or whatever, and so I'm pulling people over, and I'm only predominantly pulling over African-American people, well, then regardless of what race I am, I must be racist because those are the only people I'm pulling over. Nobody looks at the statistical breakdown of the community. They look at the statistical breakdown of who's being pulled over. If you're in a neighborhood that's 80% African-American, who else do you want me to pull over? Right. Yeah. The... In in my hypothetical scenario, I was trying to construct a better system. If there is, if, if the system that we have is not ideal for handling uh, some sort of pocket of you know bad actors, right, in law enforcement, if that's possible, um, then I'm trying to f- imagine what that would be. Like, if if the system's not fair, what would a more fair system be? And it seems to me that the system is designed pretty well. And what, what I, what I heard you say is, well, not necessarily if you have a very small neighborhood of a very small minority group, right. Then the, the grand jury is not necessarily going to be representative of that group. And so that group could, and I, I'm picking, you know, purple people from Mars just because it doesn't really matter what <laughs> subsect I'm talking about, but the, 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 that, that group of individuals can feel like they're being, uh, uh, treated unfairly in the community and the grand jury system might not catch that because statistically they're such a small minority that they wouldn't be represented in that system. Is that possible? And it, it wouldn't take an entire police force, but if you just had one, one bad actor who was right. But if you have, if you have one, to use your term, one bad actor, most police departments have a complaint system set up already that if people feel that one person is acting inappropriately, then there are mechanisms in place for the complaints to be addressed and to identify that person. Yeah. But so for if, a, if one guy is getting a ton of complaints, then it's going to stand out. Then internal but, affairs or whatever. Correct. That whatever mechanism that department has in place to say, Hey, you don't like purple people from Mars and we need to send you through training or just you've gone so far down that road we have to cut ties with you completely because your your attitudes are such that they're not going to be fixable mm-hmm. um, the departments usually have a choice and and sometimes there's a retraining that can occur and sometimes let's just sever ties and 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 move on um, but i think as far as the grand jury process goes 
there should almost always be a purple person from Mars on that grand jury who should be able to say, hey, us purple people from Mars feel like this police department is, for whatever reason, their motivation seems to be against us. So if the grand jury is made up of your peers, there should be enough of a representation of the community for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't recall very many places other than maybe like um, the Hamptons in New York, where if you're not Caucasian, you're going to really, really, really stand out. And um, so therefore... Your grand jury in that county is probably going to be 100% Caucasian. Almost every other county in the United States that I can think of have enough diversity in them that you're, I mean, there are parts of Wyoming probably that have so few people in them that their grand jury is going to be pretty limited on their their scope of people. Mm-hmm. But most urban communities have enough diversity that you're going to have some people representing even purple people from Mars on the grand jury. Hmm. So there might not be 80% purple people from Mars, but they will be represented and that person would have the ability to express their opinions and predisposition biases that they brought with them to the group. Yeah. But the, the diversity of the, like the, the grand jury report on the, the Michael Brown case, like it was a thousand pages or whatever it was. The summary that I saw that, that NPR did is the eyewitness testimony was so across the board variant I, that I couldn't believe it. Right. I mean, and, and, these are people who say they were eyewitness, some, not all of them, but some of them were reporting totally different factual, like they, they've laid out a whole grid. I don't know if you saw this thing, but they laid out a whole grid of what people said. Right. Everyone that was in the, the grand jury evidentiary process or whatever it's called. And I, I was just amazed at eyewitness testimony diversity. And, and that th- think of that going beyond the grand jury to a crime has been committed and now it's gone to trial. So you're trying to say this person's guilty. We want this person to be held accountable and you have to bring all those eyewitnesses on. So who are you going to side with? You just had 50 eyewitnesses tell you 50 different things. None of them as a prosecutor makes you feel good about the fact I'm saying this person did it because you just had 50 different people say 50 different things. And that's part of the whole problem with eyewitness is kind of like the grand jury. Everybody has a, a, it's not necessarily prejudice, but a bias that they bring with them and they're going to see things from their perspective. We all know the, the phrase um, perception is reality. And so whatever they perceive has happened is what happened to them, whether it's factual or not. And so that's why in this case, the facts on top of 50 different people seeing 50 different things presented themselves the way they did. Yeah. Do you feel like overall there's there's a fair amount of scrutiny on on uh, officer behavior, or is there too much scrutiny, or too little, or does the does the media always seem to be? Like I think a, to say there's a fair amount would be an understatement. I think now more than ever. 
there's a scrutiny level that's hard to be correct all the time. Regardless of what job you do, there's going to be somebody doing the same job that can um, have a bad day. And most jobs, when you have a bad day, you put in a wrong line of code or you gave somebody the wrong change or you did something like that. In our line of work, when you have a bad day, somebody's life could be on the line, whether it's yours, your partner's, a citizen's, or a suspect's. Yeah. Yeah, my, I have a pretty low risk bad day threshold. I mean, I, you know, in, in, <laughs> in computer programming, the, the worst thing that can happen is embarrassing, you know, for the most part. I mean, you can have really bad days, but nothing like, nothing like what I'm sure you faced. So is it in the last six months that things you, you said recently, it seems like there's more pressure. Is it kind of a six month thing or you mean like over the last 10 years comparatively or I would say in, in the last six months that things have changed dr- dramatic, dramatically. Oh, really? Um, I think the concept of um, fallibility within the grand jury system, which is a system that's been in place for a long time, in today's social media world, 24-hour news cycle world, and like you said earlier, everything has to be sensationalized, well he couldn't have been doing his job and doing it well. There has to be more to the story always seems to be the concept. And I understand some communities, um, we'll go back to the purple people from Mars might think that, um, they're not being treated fairly by whomever. Maybe it's one person, maybe it's a whole department. Um, but the scrutiny level of that one person, that one department is now significantly higher now than it was before. And so um, if people didn't feel like they could complain for whatever purpose before, now those complaints are being made. I think um, most police departments, the level of complaints they're getting um, are going up. The number of substantiated complaints are not going up. It's people feel like, Okay, well, now it's okay to voice my discontent with whatever happened, but once the investigation gets going, so the complaint comes in, and it's um, whether it's a citizen's board or whoever reviews it, then it's assigned to an internal affairs detective in our case. So the internal affairs detective says, okay, we're going to investigate this. Well, a lot of times the officer isn't even notified that, hey, you have a complaint because they're able to completely, whether it's rectify the complaint by explaining our department's procedures, that the officer was simply following procedures, or um, I know we don't have body cameras, but you have dash cams, and those dash cameras have microphones, and you can go back and listen to and watch and, and, and review that, and you see that sometimes the complaint is unfounded. It's just simply, I would like to make a complaint now that I think in the last six months, those complaints have gone up, but yet specifically in our department, the number of substantiated complaints has not gone up. Hmm. Is that like a one week evaluation kind of period or like how long does it take to substantiate a, I'm just trying to figure out. So, so I, I file some sort of complaint and they have to follow up with me and figure out what's, 
Is for for our department, it's 45 or? days. From the time you make oh, a complaint, okay. yeah. they have 45 days to determine if it's a legitimate complaint or not. So it's not like they have an endless amount of time. Um, it's not like it's a homicide scene where they, okay, we're trying to get as much facts as we can. This is, do we have somebody who is creating problems for people and we need to get addressed? It's kind of like the whole idea of discipline should be swift. Well, 45 days doesn't sound swift, but in the scope of a 30-year career, 45 days is relatively swift. Yeah. So. After the, the Ferguson event, um, uh, Gwen Eiffel is, a, a, I think, she's a Washington Week correspondent, and um, she did a, a community town hall forum. And I was fascinated and saddened to see that uh, some of the young men who were African-American were of, were, had had what they describe as these, these horrific run-ins with, uh, law enforcement early in their lives and that they have decided that they would not call the police for anything under any circumstances. Like that's how, um, how strongly that they felt that they had been let down. And I just found it immensely sad that we, we don't have a, a better process than, than engaging with the, uh, with the, uh, with with the problem, I mean, if there's if, if they had a situation where they were treated unfairly, to not be able to go through the complaints process, you know, and and so it makes you wonder. Well, one, how real was that, and then how much of that was just their perspective on a specific event where they didn't see, you know, half of what the officer saw, or. Right did the officer actually do something inappropriate? In which case, hopefully they could go through the, the process of, uh, working through that. But, but the, this, I think, I mean, what I hear from, uh, like the New York stop and frisk sorts of, uh, activities is that in some communities, you just feel that, that African-Americans specifically feel very targeted constantly when they haven't done anything um, and, and that, because there's no, there's no stopping that that's specific to New York city. Is that? No, it's a, called a, a Terry stop. Um, Terry stop. Yeah. It's a federal, it's a Supreme court. Um, I believe is, I, I believe so cut this out. If not Terry yeah. versus Arizona. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it basically is what gives what we refer to as pedestrian check, ped check. So, Somebody's walking down the street. I have to have, I can walk up to them and stop and talk to them. But to frisk them, I have to have a reasonable suspicion to believe that either what they refer to as crime is afoot, great term, um, or that, that there's something suspicious about the activity. So not probable cause for an arrest, but I just have to have what reasonable person could believe something's afoot the term. And so then based on what I can articulate and what I can, if I had to write a report, write a report as to why I stopped the person, I can frisk them. Um, my own officer safety, as much as I want to say, Hey, I'm frisking you because I think you might have a gun is not a reason to frisk somebody. Um, lots of police officers say in their reports that I stopped and frisked them for my officer safety. You, 
as a police officer, my safety is not a reason to frisk somebody as much as we want it to be. Um, there has to be a reasonable suspicion that I can explain to somebody as to why I would be frisking them. There's a big difference in a frisk and a search. A lot of people think frisk and search are the same thing, but a frisk is just simply, I'm patting down the exterior of your clothing, making sure you don't have what I can readily identify as a weapon or contraband because I believe whatever reasonable suspicion I has existed that I'm wanting to frisk you. And I can do that if I can have, if I have reasonable suspicion to search, I have to have probable cause. So if, if departmental policy in New York targets specific neighborhoods that are, that are high crime or have high, uh, whatever the, 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 the target is, right. And the result of that, because it happens to be that African-Americans are 90% of the people that live there is that lots and of African-Americans are getting stopped, uh, uh, Terry stopped in their neighborhoods all the time when they haven't done anything. I'm sure that would harbor a lot of resentment in that community. And the, uh, you know, the, the, some rich white neighborhoods are not getting Terry stopped constantly. Right. And that, I mean, that's a real thing, right? It, it, It is, but what's the goal of the police enforcement? Is it to, we have a bad neighborhood that we're trying to clean up. And if that's the case, then you have to consider whoever it is, purple people from Mars, African-Americans, you're living in a neighborhood that the city has determined, the police department has determined that through enforcement, we're trying to assist you in cleaning up your neighborhood. Mm. And if that means stopping people who are selling drugs, stopping people who are carrying the guns and getting the drugs and the guns off the street, then that's what their enforcement is designed to do. And so if a upper scale white neighborhood is not having the problem with the guns and the drugs and the violence, then that would be correct. They're probably not going to have as many Terry stops, but you also have to look at what's the goal is the goal to help reduce crime. In which case I understand it might be inconvenient and you might think you're being targeted, but you are not being targeted as an individual. Your neighborhood is being targeted to reduce crime. And so if society doesn't want to reduce crime, then the, your neighborhood needs to speak up and say, we're fine with the crime that we have. Does the, does community engagement occur with, um, are, are there like, like I hear a lot of, I, I hear about returning to community policing where the, where the, the law enforcement officers are, uh, on foot patrol, actually talking to people, and they're actually they if they have enough time, hopefully, to to actually be out. I mean, in a, in a large metro where you're driving everywhere, that probably doesn't work. But well, in well, there there are in New York where pilot programs. I mean, New York New York is, is is a tough example only because of the size of the population and the fact you have twenty two thousand people on their police department. So that, I mean that that number just blows people's mind when you hear. There's more people in the police department than there are citizens in some small towns in Missouri and Kansas and Iowa and wherever. But there's millions and, of... Right. You have 8 million people living there. So right. so 22,000 is... Correct. Nothing. Um, but, but on the flip side, it's one of those... I forgot what my question was. Yeah, and that's where I was like... What was my question? Yeah, that's, that's where I'm... We shouldn't do this late at night. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I had a really no, good we... point that had to do with the number of people they had... 
versus the number of. So we we're talking about foot patrols. Yeah. Okay. Versus so, car patrols. Correct. Yeah. New York. It's 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 very easy to say. Okay, you're working this beat. The dense population is easier to be on foot. Philadelphia example has implemented a foot beat, but the idea of community policing doesn't necessarily mean getting out and getting on foot. It means making contacts with the within your community. Yeah, positive association Correct. is the trick, right? But That's the goal. It, it, it is. And as a police officer, I can make as many po- positive contacts as I want, but as a father, which I am, if I tell my kids two, three, four years old, um, the police are only here to hurt you, then when they see the police and the police are trying to have positive citizen contacts, the kids either A, run, or B, who are you here to hurt? Mm-hmm. And so neither of which are good. So as a society, it needs to get back to the police are here to help. And I understand that being six, seven years old and seeing dad arrested in front of you can be hard. But on the flip side of dad's being arrested, he did something wrong. So there is benefit, probably, right, to more uh, positive uh, engagement. Like if if you're run so ragged, if if you if your resources are so limited that you're running from call to call to call to call to call, and the only time anyone ever sees you is when you're insanely busy, right? When they've called nine one one and need us, yes, right. Yeah. It's I would think I don't I don't know <laughs> I would think it's healthier for everybody if you have way more time and you can actually spend time um, having uh, you know in neighborhoods where people walk around like I live in suburbia so nobody's outside anyway (laughs) so there's like hardly anything going on but if you can walk around and and people see you you know a, 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 a physical presence that's not in the currently chasing somebody down the street that is that a positive use of time overall a- absolutely um we also have to look at from a safety standpoint is it the best safety standpoint to send two people on foot to a neighborhood trying to establish these positive contacts who we currently know that neighborhood does not like the police hmm. so yeah. you're trying to establish positive contacts they haven't been made yet so hmm. It's almost easier to have a layer of protection such as the car and be able to go slowly. And if you see people out, you wave and you smile, get out of the car and talk to people. But you have the quick and easy access of a vehicle or assistance in a vehicle versus being on foot and being alone until those contacts have been made. And once you have a few people on the block who know, hey, you're Officer Joe Schmo, and you're a nice guy, and you're there to help, then when they see you on foot walking around, they'll smile, and they'll wave, and they'll, they'll do whatever. But you get a couple people on each block smiling and waving, suddenly the whole attitude on the block can change towards that officer. But until some of those contacts have been made, you're basically sending two people out to be a target. Yeah. And I... I, I heard an interesting story about how um, law enforcement on night shift for years would, would in I forget what is this Baltimore I can't remember, but they had been on night shift in these neighborhoods 
And so every night, night after night after night, they're breaking up bar fight, bar fight, bar fight, bar fight, bar fight. And then they shifted the, they changed the policy around so that those same officers can rotate onto day shift. And suddenly there's like, it's a neighborhood and it's kids and it's, you know, it's, there's, there's people going to work and there's old people. And I, I, I found that a fascinating eye-opening thing because what had happened in this story that this officer was telling was that he had, uh, he, he hadn't even realized that he had grown jaded to the neighborhood that he was serving because uh, the time slot that he was in was the troublemakers making trouble, you know, and that that was just amazing that they allowed that kind of daily or the, the, the rotation through the various uh, times. So, I mean, because I think we're all human and, if if I'm exposed to the the same input over and over and over again, of course I'm going to learn that. Guess what? That's what's probably going to happen tomorrow, and that's going to affect my attitude, and I'm not going to be very happy about it, you know. So, but hopefully they're hopefully law enforcement is given enough resources that you know life can be uh, sane. Right. No, I, absolutely. <laughs> And and <laughs> as much as community policing is currently one of the hot buzzwords in, in law enforcement, what you just hit on is the resources. That if you're not, as a community or as a uh, city, town, whatever, have the resources, the people, to dedicate to something like that on top of the people who have to answer 911 calls and the detectives and the, the whoever else, then... It's, you're just robbing Peter to pay Paul and moving simply moving people from one valued task to another still valued task, but then you're not filling the previous hole. So whether you just took a, a detective, now you're on foot beat and trying to make community contacts, or you're the officer who was in a car answering 911 calls, to now you're on foot beat trying to make community contacts, there are definitely values to doing that. Just a matter of the community has to want the resources there. And mm. currently more and more communities are saying we want less police, not more police. So it's hard just from a budgetary standpoint, or? from all standpoint budget. Just think of the Ferguson, the New York, the, okay, well, are we having too much police seems mm. to be an ongoing. Well, there's the whole militarization of police, you know, angle in the, in the news, as far as heavy, how do you, how do you know the neighborhood when you're rolling through with SWAT vehicles? But I assume that's only the specialist teams, right? That have that kind of equipment. Right. If there's a riot, we're bringing in the riot people. (laughs) So without need, so Ferguson's brought in a lot of the, the militarization of the police department because people could see on TV, the cats and the bear cats and the big armored vehicles, which almost every police department has, but we drive around in crown Vicks and, and, uh, uh, Dodge Chargers and, and and things like that. Not, you know, I, I don't get to drive a Bearcat for fun every day. That's not my police car. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. Well, and hopefully it, you never need them, right? I mean, this is right, but it, it is a tool that if the example is somebody is shooting from their house oh, yeah. at people walking by on the street, so am I supposed to pull up in my police car to go address the person or? Once he's elevated to he's shooting at people, 
shouldn't the police department have the tools and resources to protect not only me as a police officer, but the community? Well, I think that's when drone strikes make sense. I mean, that's my, that's my take on it. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure we should be doing drone strikes to the extent that we are in in, uh, in Pakistan. But but at home, they'd be good. At 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 home, in that in, in a barricaded, yeah, I wouldn't mind that so much <laughs> because it's insane to ask you to risk your life for someone who's gone. You know. I, th- I think there's a line in society, and once you've crossed it, you've, you've. Uh, but but from a police standpoint, that's the argument for um, the mil- quote militarization of the police department. Well, once people started getting AK-47s and shooting at people, right. well, my my Crown Vic's not going to protect me from an AK-47 round. Right. So I need to have some way to protect not only me but the the, the community. And if that means buying former military surplus to do it, then that's what we need to do. Because I don't, it, you know, everyone's getting about gun laws or whatever. Forget that stuff. If people have them, they're using them. I, as a police department, need to have a way to protect people. Yeah. And what other way is there to do it other than sooner or later he's going to run out of ammo and stop shooting people. And then we can go in and get him. Or I have an armored vehicle that I can drive up into his front yard into the front of his house and go get him. Right. So no drone strikes? <laughs> you don't have the, I'm all for drone strikes. <laughs> all for drone strikes. Yeah. And it, oh boy, that's just got to be so heartbreaking when the, the, when, when the bad guy is destroying other people's lives and they're in the same house with them. I mean, every domestic dispute has just got to be just, oh, man, it's got to be so rough, you know, because, I mean, us normal citizens, we don't, we hardly ever get exposed ever in our entire lives, and this is like every call <laughs> for a police officer, you know. Right, and that's what the, <laughs> the, the joke is to, you know, from law enforcement, or to my, my friends in law enforcement, to people who aren't, is we see more violence in one or two shifts than most people see in their entire lives. Right. And so it's either you desensitize a little to that and understand that it's your job and you can't take it personally, or sooner or later you're just going to need a, a break and, and a recu- recovery time period. Um, people talk about PTSD and, and the military, but there is PTSD you know, on, on police departments, any police department that has a, um, any type of active shooter situation that the law enforcement has to go deal with, then that's same level of, um, mental distress that can go on as in the military. And, you know, that's, that's not at all anything that's ever factored in, but it's just something that, has to be taken into consideration and everything that's going on is the amount of things that law enforcement does see on a regular basis being so different that if you live in suburbia, you live in, you know, what some people refer to as like cupcake land and that's all you see. And then you hear about stuff going on in, in, in the hood or the inner city or the whatever, you're oblivious to the amount of crime 
and violence that actually occurs. Mm-hmm. So the number of times that you know I can talk about, I was on a shooting last night, and somebody has to ask me which one, mm-hmm. because we had more than one. If you live in the suburban area and you're not watching the news or, or doing whatever, you're just going about your life, you're taking your kids to school and you go to work and you go pick the kids up and you eat dinner and you go to bed, the amount of violence that's even not reported in the media is astonishing and people would be shocked. Yeah. Yeah, the statistics are like, I, I live in Omaha and you look at the crime statistics and how clustered the crime is, it's just amazing. And uh, I've seen uh, maps of uh, racial dispersion maps, and it's it's just, I, I mean, I, I thought that, well, yeah, I mean, look, I live in Nebraska, so it's mostly all white folks anyway, but I, I could not believe the stark lines that are on the maps of uh, the Hispanic communities and the black communities, and then the, the, there's Asian communities that are neighborhoods of clustered, like, these are bright lines of, of, uh, of uh, segmentation. And you look at the violent crime maps, and they don't happen out by my house. I mean, I live way the hell out in West Omaha, halfway to Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, where, I, where I live, there's hardly any violent crime at all. But you look at these, the maps, and it's, just, you know, it's another shooting, and it's another shooting, and it's another shooting. And they're in North Central, for the most part, Omaha. And it's just, it's crazy. We, we live these lives where, uh, for my family, th- these things don't hardly exist. Unless we, you go looking for the information, it's not even part of our, it's not on our radar at all. Right. Know? Or the local news won't even bother reporting on it because it's so common in the neighborhoods yeah. that it's occurring. If it doesn't happen in the sub- suburbs, they're not even going to report on the shooting. As long as somebody didn't die. If somebody dies, then that's just going to make the news. But you have three shootings overnight, nobody died. They might just might just be a line in the news. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time. and I'll... Well, Thank you for listening to my rambling. <laughs> I, will, I will edit out most of my inane <laughs> blather. And uh, I, I really appreciate you. Uh... Not a problem. Always glad to chat. Taking the time. Thanks. Yeah.